we are in the, uh, we're in the book of Exodus. Second book in the Bible. Start in the far left. Just go one book over. And we are going to be at the end of chapter 15 all the way through the, the end of chapter 18. So uh, we're not going to read all of it. But you will be quite helped if you have your Bibles open um, so you can, you know, flip back and forth, which is what we're going to do this morning. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Mike will bring you a Bible. Uh, Some of you like taking tests. Some of you are those people. Um, But but for most people, taking tests, not that much fun, right? But, But really, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But, but the purpose of a test is actually to sort of exhume or to, to bring out that which is hidden out to the public. Like, think of the kind of the famous test, the SAT. The purpose, the alleged purpose of taking this test is so that colleges will know if you have what it takes in order to be successful in their college. That's the purpose. It's to reveal the academic abilities internal and make them external, right? To reveal if you've got it, what it takes to succeed in college. But, but we know that not all tests come by way of a scantron. Tests come in all shapes and sizes. Recently, actually, this test comes to me a lot. Um, husbands, you might relate to this, but um, I often get this test with my wife. She'll come to me and she'll say, which outfit should I wear? Now, early on in my marriage, I assumed that she legitimately wanted my thoughts on which outfit I was to pick. But that's not the case. This is a test. There is only one right answer. She usually puts it a little bit closer to me, right? It's a test to to, to see if I can sort of read her mind, if I in, intuitively understand her needs, what she's liking in this season. It's a test. So tests, they reveal or they sort of attempt to reveal the inner conditions or the inner contours of our inner lives. Winston Churchill put it this way also, that it's not just these, these individual moments, but in many ways all of life is a test. He once said that life is a test And this world is a place of trial. Because in many ways, Scantron tests, oh, those are the easy tests. Tests by way of hardship, tests that come by way of trial, those are the difficult tests. So you're driving to work, and your car breaks down, and you're on the side of the road calling AAA, and you are just... All the things that you have to do at work, those emails, those meetings that's just flashing in your mind, you're getting more and more behind. It's a test. In that moment, what is going to be revealed? As people drive by you, what sort of behavior is going to be revealed to the world because of that test? Or let's say your kids are hopped up on Halloween candy and they decide to play indoor tackle football and knock over a lamp and break it. This is hypothetical, okay? It's a test. How will you in that moment, how will you respond? You've got those seasons in your life where you just, you work and, you, and there's just not enough hours in the day to get everything done, to get to every email, to get to 
stress, it's a test. It's revealing the inner condition of your lives and heart. How are you going to respond? What, what, what sort of things are going to be revealed in those moments? Well, this fall, we've been studying the book of Exodus. And in the end of chapter 15, verse 25, and then once again in chapter 16, verse 4, we read that God tests his people. God delivered his people out of the land of Egypt, out from under the, the, the yoke of slavery, and he brings them into the wilderness, and he tests them. The book of Deuteronomy summarizes this test in this way. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know that which is in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. It's a test. A test to reveal what's in their hearts. Prior to this, God tested Pharaoh and found out that Pharaoh's heart was hard. And now the test comes to Israel. And what is God going to find as he tests Israel in the wilderness? And perhaps for us this morning, that the question that we all should be asking is, as we get tested, as, as life is a test, are we going to pass? What sort of things in our own heart and our own souls will be revealed in the various tests that come to us in life. So this morning, the question isn't, are you going to go through trials? Are you going to be tested? That, that, that is kind of the nature of life. The question is, when those tests come to us, what's going to be revealed? What comes out of our hearts and souls when we're being tested, when trials come to us? So the big idea, it's going to be behind me. This is clunky and it's big and I apologize for you note takers, but this was my best attempt and this took me like 10 times, okay? This is a long section and I promise you point one and the first section is the longest in the, um, in, in the exodus that we're going to look at, but this is my best attempt, okay? God's testing in the wilderness is to grow his people in faith one, activate their faith and power. Two, and empower their testimony for the good of the nations. Three, so write it down. You might not have a lot of time before it flashes back to the slide of Exodus, all right? So this, this first section that we're going to look at is a travel narrative, right? We just finished that God's people, they go through the Red Sea. And what we're looking at is God's people from the Red Sea all the way to Mount Sinai. Last roughly about two months. So to sort of just briefly kind of orient us geographically to, to this narrative, let me just read a few verses. So chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Sur. Then flip over to chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Then if you flip over to chapter 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. And then finally, chapter 19, verse 1, 
We finally arrive at Mount Sinai, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing. We read in chapter 19, verse 1, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So this morning, we're going to see in these three and a half chapters, from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, we're going to kind of chunk it into three parts. So the first part is verse 22 of chapter 15 all the way to chapter 17, verse 7. And it is a literary unit. So just as you're just some Bible study 101, if, if, if you know, it, we know that it's a literary unit because it starts in chapter 15 with God providing water. And then at the end in chapter 17, it's once again, God providing water. And then in the middle, we have this wonderful story about God providing food in the wilderness. And we're going to learn in these three stories of God's provision as God's people are marching through the wilderness, we're going to learn this first point. And it's that God does this. God tests them for a particular purpose. And the purpose is simply this, that he might grow his people in faith, that he might grow them in trust. Now, I'm no outdoorsman. Just look at me, okay? I'm no outdoorsman. But I have watched Man vs. Wild, okay? And Bear Grylls tells me that when you're in the wilderness, when you're in the desert, there's a few things that you lack. Food and water. That's exactly what we find here in the wilderness, right? Look at chapter 15, verse 22. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. They came to Mara and they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Then go to chapter 16, verse 2. First water, now hunger. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They did so in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and the bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And flip to 17, verse 2. Therefore, the people, of the, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Then verse 3, the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So chapter 15, God's people are thirsty. Chapter 16, they're hungry. Chapter 17, they're thirsty again. Now, who could blame them? Did you see in chapter 15, it said three days they lacked water, right? I mean, I was driving for an hour in a car and I was thirsty and I wanted to throw a tantrum. This is three days without water. And then you get to chapter, um, ch- chapter 16, and it's as if they're like walking. They, they, they just drank to the full, but all of a sudden they look at their food and they're like, we don't have enough food. It's going to run out. And they're hungry and they're desperate. And then they arrive at Meribah in chapter 17 and kind of the whole cycle goes over again. They're thirsty once again. They've got no water and they cry out to the Lord. 
but did you notice in those three stories that I read, just the section, uh, the, the kind of introduction to these stories, there's a, a description of God's people that every time they thirsted, every time they hungered, they're described in a particular way. They grumbled. Now, this works on two levels, right? They physically grumbled, right? Their stomachs were grumbling. That's what hungry stomachs do. They grumble. But not only were they physically hungry, they, they, they genuinely were hungry and thirsty. But there's a spiritual reality to this. So in chapter 15, it says that at the end, it says that God, it, God tested his people. Then in chapter 16, it says God tested them. But then you get into chapter 17, and this whole idea of testing is flipped. We read that Moses said to, his, to the people, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now it's God's people who are testing the Lord. See the difference there? You see that their grumbling, their physical grumbling, is a manifestation of their heart. And now in chapter 17, as they are once again thirsty, What's going on here is now it's not just, hey, we don't know what to do. We need, we need thirst. We're, we're, we need water. We need food. Now they're saying, God, it's your fault. And in chapter 17, they put God in the dock, as it were. They, they put God on trial. They, they say, this is your fault, God. We're going to test you. You said that you were going to deliver us into this promised land. You were going to deliver us into this, this present. You were going to provide for us. And it doesn't feel like you're doing this. Wandering in the wilderness is hard, and you don't need to watch Man vs. Wild to know that. Right? Spiritually speaking, wandering in the wilderness is hard. And the interesting thing is, we know that God is with them. He's present with them in the midst of the wilderness. Last week we talked about it. You know, he was a pillar by fire, and he was a cloud. He, he was always, day and night, with his people, present, guiding them, leading them. And it was still hard. They were still beaten down. My guess is sometimes their only hope was in hallucinated dreams of food and water. Walking through the wilderness is hard. Two months of this before they get to Sinai. We all have those seasons in our life. Seasons maybe where God feels distant. Seasons of loneliness. Seasons where we're beaten down by discouragement. Seasons where you take out the family calculator and you do the math and you just go, we don't have enough money to pay the bills. The wilderness isn't a joke. It's hard. And when you're going through those seasons, you begin to wonder, why am I going through this? What's the purpose in all of this? Why do, am I going through this season of spiritual drought? Well, we learn from these three chapters that God has a purpose in it. God's teaching them. You see, as they got out of Egypt, as, as the exodus kind of comes, it, it's like a birth narrative, right? God's people as a nation are birthed, and now they're in adolescence. 
And everyone knows with teenagers, they have a lot to learn. And God's people here in the wilderness have a lot to learn. And the wilderness is a perfect context for God to reach his people and to teach his people. And here we learn that God provides, don't we? In the midst of this, God is the sort of God who provides. So if you go back to chapter 15, God provides water, doesn't he? Moses throws a log into the water and the water become, goes from bitter to sweet. It's now drinkable and they drink until their stomachs are full. And then in chapter 17, God tells Moses to walk up to a rock with the staff of judgment, the staff of, of power, and to hit the rock and water bursts out of it. And they drank until their hearts were full. And then in chapter 16, as their hunger rose and rose, as their pangs began to like talk to one another, chapter 16, verse 4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And then we get the whole details. I mean, chapter 16 is all about this bread from heaven. And it's very interesting, right? Because every morning they're to go out. There's this sort of endless drama that they're supposed to to do. They're supposed to go out every morning. And they're supposed to collect this, this, this food, this bread. And it's literally called, what is it? Right? They don't even know what it is, but it does the job. And so every morning they collect, and they're supposed to collect enough that their whole family can eat. They can't connect, uh, uh, collect too much. Only a day's worth. Otherwise, it's going to spoil. It'll get worms. It'll get stinky. They eventually do this, right? They, they, they hoard. Remember a year and a half ago, some people went to the grocery store and hoarded toilet paper? You know who you are. Well, it's... It's the exact opposite here. They, they can't hoard manna. They can only get enough for a day. God's also going to provide quail at night. And so they're supposed to do this. Every day, go out, get enough for the day, except for one day, the day before the Sabbath, they can get out. They, they're supposed to get enough for two days because on the Sabbath, they're not going to work and they're going to eat the previous day's food. So every single day, They get up, they eat the night before, and they have to trust God that when they wake up in the morning, there will be manna for them. And then on the day before the Sabbath, they have to collect two days, assuming that though every other day the manna spoils, on this one day, God will provide for them and it's not going to spoil. Do you see why God is doing this? This is very intentional. It's pretty clear. This is what educators call experiential learning. God is going to teach them through the experience of waking up every day that every day they've got to trust God for provision. It'd be one thing if he just rained bread down from heaven and said, great, you've got enough for the two months. No, God doesn't do that. God says every day you're going to have to wake up and every day you walk out as a new expression of your faith and trust. And then on the day before the Sabbath, you're going to do the same thing all over again. You're going to have to get double and you're going to have to trust me that that's going to provide for you as well. You see, God in the wilderness is teaching his people what kind of relationship he's going to have with them and it's going to be a relationship based on trust. It's going to be a relationship based on faith. And it makes sense 
How do you teach that lesson? Like, how do you teach the lesson of trust and faith? In times of prosperity, is that, is that, does that lesson kind of, is that a lesson that we learn in times of prosperity, in the good times, in the joyful times? I don't think so. I think it's in the times of the wilderness. It's in times of suffering and hardship. Those are the times, more often than not, that we really learn to trust God. So here we have God's people going to Sinai. Right? And we know the, the, the Sinai story, right? Moses goes up and he meets with God. God speaks to him. God's glory is revealed in some shape or fashion to Moses. This amazing mountaintop experience. We all want that experience. But you only get that experience. You only get to Sinai. You only get to the mountaintop experience if you first go through the wilderness. You first have to learn how to trust God before you get to a deeper experience of personally being with God himself. Now, I think many of us think, but at least emotionally we think, but it's not fair. I don't like this. I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to go through the wilderness. We all like times of plenty. It's times of want that are most discouraging to us. And yet, I think one of the lessons we learn from these three stories is that those times when we go through the wilderness, those times of hardship, of suffering, of trial, they are God's providential gift to us to deepen our trust in him. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy. Faith is never easy. It's hard work. But just look at the God who is displayed in these couple chapters. I mean, he's the God who, who, you know, swirled galaxies into their places. He is the the God who did all these wonders in Egypt, who has creation at his beck and call. And he, at that same time, cares enough for his people that he would stoop down and provide for their every need. That's the kind of God we see here. The God of God who provides for his people. But if you want to even see God in maybe greater detail, I I think you need a telescopic lens. We need to look at Exodus, but then go all the way to the New Testament because the New Testament actually picks up these very images and connects them to the greatest provision that God has ever provided for his people. Remember John 6? Jesus feeds 5,000 people for manna from heaven. Very deliberate. And then soon, right after that, right after God, right after, sorry, Jesus provides manna in the wilderness for his people, they start grumbling. And then this is what Jesus deliberately says. He declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He even connects water and food and says, the ultimate sustenance. Because remember, he's not talking physically here, right? He's talking spiritually. And Jesus is saying that the ultimate 
provision of spiritual food and water can only be found in Jesus Christ himself. He's saying all of us are wandering. All of us have these hunger pains. All of us spiritually wonder, is there a God? Uh, Is he going to provide for me? We all have these sort of emotional and spiritual needs and questions and desires. And we have this appetite for the things of God. And those hunger pains, those, those thirsts, they can find, they're quenched. They can be quenched in Jesus Christ himself. Actually, more than that, they can only be found in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul picks the same language up in 1 Corinthians. Right? Paul writes to the, to, to the church in Corinth, and he writes something that's very, very odd on the surface, but makes perfect sense if we just slow down. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes this, verse 1. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were under the cloud and that all passed through the sea. Right? He's talking about the Exodus. He's talking about the very story we're going through. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And then we have this kicker in verse 4. And that rock was Christ. So there in chapter 17, we've got the rock at Meribah. And Paul says that rock is Christ. Now you should instantly be saying like, no. Like how in the world, how does Paul connect the rock of Meribah with the rock of Christ? How does he do it? Well, just just think about it for a minute. You've got this wilderness scene. You've got God's people complaining, they're grumbling, they're putting God to the test. It was a judicial test. They're basically saying, God, you're on trial for failure to live up to your word. And so then Moses says, okay, I'm going to stand for God as his representative. And Moses has the rod of justice in his hand. And he lifts it up and you think, Where's this going to fall? I mean, it should fall on Israel. They're they're, they're the ones that are in sin. They're the ones putting God to the test. But something fascinating happens in verse 6. Look at it. Chapter 17, verse 6. Behold, this is God. Behold, I, God, will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb. At at Meribah, Moses stands with the rod of judgment, that staff. And instead of that rod of justice falling on Israel, it falls on the rock. And here we have God who steps forward and says, that rod of justice will fall on me. So when they complain, when they grumble, when they test God, God steps up. God answers their accusations by placing himself in their place under the rod of divine justice. Do you guys see why Paul connects the rock at Meribah with Jesus? This is what Jesus did. This is an allegory. Paul's not using allegory here. He's just using basic biblical theology. But Paul's reminding us that Jesus himself stepped forward in the place of his people and the divine judgment that should have come on the world instead comes on him. And in that crucifixion, what, what, what happens at that moment? 
What happens in the moment of crucifixion when he's pierced? Water flows out of him, doesn't it? Physically. Oh, but a greater water flows out of him. That that physical manifestation of water flowing out of him was but a, a physical manifestation of a greater spiritual reality because spiritual water was flowing out of him. Eternal life for all those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's why we can trust God. It's why we can trust him when we're going through seasons where we don't know how we're going to make it. Because if God would provide such a provision of Jesus Christ, he will provide for us. Maybe not how we would want, but in a way that trains us and teaches us that in the high points in our lives and in the low points, in the good times and the bad, we can trust God. That's the sort of God he is. The sort of God who would provide by giving his own son to step forward to take the divine wrath caused by our sin such that we can have eternal life with him. Look, our, our, our faith isn't in our dreams. I'm certain that the people of God in the wilderness had their dreams and it wasn't being thirsty for three days. We all have our dreams, and yet here we have a reminder that we can put our faith and trust ultimately in God because he is the bread of life. He is the person where we can have our, our thirst, our spiritual quench, our spiritual thirst quenched because he is living water. So here we have in the wilderness, God, he's testing his people but he's testing them in order to train them, to to assess them, to grow them, to mature them because the wilderness is the perfect opportunity to test God's people in order that he might grow us to say, yes, my circumstance doesn't make sense. I don't know exactly how to get out of this. I've made all my pros and cons list and yet I'm just at the end of the day gonna have to trust you to provide for our many needs. And that's what he does. He provides for God's people, even in the wilderness. Well, second, God not only uses this wilderness experience as a means and a purpose to grow his people, he also does so to activate their faith in power. Look at chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one, uh, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under this heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We'll stop there. Well, in the wilderness, not only do we have drought and hunger, we've got bandits. And so we've got Amalek, which is talking about his ethnicity. He's an Amalekite. And unprovoked, it seems like, he attacks Israel. And then in verse 9, we're introduced to a really important character that we'll meet later. Joshua, commander of the army of Israel. And so this, this plan is hatched and Moses goes up on a hill with Aaron and this man named Hur. And Moses has the staff of divine judgment in his hand. And every time he, you know, puts out his hand, Joshua and the army, they, 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 they succeed. They're, they're prevailing. But my guess is if you hold out your hand long enough, it's hard, right? Especially if you're going to do it all throughout the day. It says he did it until sunset. And so when his hand would fall, when, when he would become weak, the other army, Amalek and his army would begin to prevail. But then you, you have uh, Aaron and her. They play this really pivotal role in Moses' life. They get some stones, right? They, they, they hold up his, his arms so that they can succeed. And we learn at the very end that Joshua overwhelms Amalek and his army. And then in verse 16, the, the sort of end of this is that we learn that Amalek, the Amalekites are going to be totally blotted out. Now, what, what is the sort of purpose of this story? Well, verse 16, I really do think is the purpose. We read that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God was at war with Egypt. But if you wondered if after he led God's people out of Egypt, if God put down the sword, his sword, you'd be mistaken. God is still fighting for his people, fighting on behalf of his people. That I think really is the point of this section. God fights for his people. God battles for his people. I, I was at an event and someone made a comment in fear, and I understand it, and it was in fear to saying that, that, that people are coming for the church. And I was reading this this week, and I was encouraged by this promise. Don't mess with God's people. God himself fights for her. But just to point out, I think it's also interesting that sort of up until this point, Israel is passive. Do you notice that, that here, you know, Israel is fighting and then you've got Moses on the hill. Like, like Israel now has an active part in, in their kind of, in this story. Before this, just God did everything and they just kind of watched it all happen. But now, now they're fighting. Now they have a role to play. 
And yet really the, 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 the point in all of this is it's not like Moses is this great hero. Moses is this really strong man, right? Like this is not like Braveheart thing. This is not like gladiator language. Like Moses, the only um, description of Moses here is his weakness, right? He keeps like failing. Like his, his, his arms are weak. He's brittle, right? He doesn't have like huge Terminator arms. Like he's got like my arms. That's, thanks for not laughing. No, he keeps... He keeps failing because I think the point is that God is the one who's giving them the victory. So, so what do we make of this story? Well, in many ways, this should be reminded that, that we also have enemies, but, but in the new covenant, you know, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, our enemies are not flesh and blood. We don't have enemies of nations. People are not our enemies. But there is a spiritual reality And the ultimate, I think, kind of spiritual enemy that we have is ourselves. It's our own indwelling sin. It's the old man. That's one of our great enemies, our oldest foe, our own sin. And I just want to point out that I think, you know, we can have a long conversation about how we fight that foe. But I just want to point out one thing that we see. Moses needs friends. Did you notice that? Moses needs friends in order to win this victory. And I think by way of application, we need friends too in our fight against our own sin. We, we need friends to point out our sin. We, we need friends to encourage us, not, not with spiritual nitpicking. None of us need those friends. But, but all our sin makes us dour, right? Sin, because it then produces guilt and shame, we hang our head down when we sin. That is the inevitable consequence of sin. And yet, one of the wonderful things that a brother or sister in Christ does is they can lift up our, maybe not our arms like we see in a story, but they can lift up our heads and remind us of the sheer grace and mercy of God that he has saved us and cleansed us and provided for our sins. This whole me and Jesus against the world is just anathema. Let that die. Moses, as great he is, he is one of those great, you know, characters in the story. And yet he needed her and Aaron. He needed friends. He needed people in order for them to win the battle against the Amalekites. And we need friends too. So so, so find them. Like, make sure you're walking in life with brothers and sisters, that they know your life, that they can ask those hard questions. There's a group of guys that we, every year we, we go away and we ask really, really hard questions such that at any point, one of us could call each other's wives to see if we're lying or not. It's that type of thing. But we do so as friends. We laugh, we encourage each other, but we all, we're all in ministry. We all just want to, cross the finish line without our lives being wrecked. We want to win the battle against indwelling sin. And we need friends in order to do it. Do you have those sorts of friends? Those people that can call you and you'll encourage them, point them to the hope of the gospel? Well, if not, the best place to start and look for those friends is the local church. That's what we are. We are a family. 
We are brothers and sisters seeking to encourage each other, pointing one another to the hope of the gospel. But now finally, quickly, lastly, let's look at the final point. So first, the purpose of the tests in the wilderness is to grow God's people in faith. Then it's to activate their power, activate their faith and power. And then thirdly, it's to empower their testimony for the good of the nations. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 18. Chapter 18, you, you know this story. It's, it's um, divided up into kind of two sections, verses 1 to 12 and then 13 through uh, 27. And, uh, you know, some uh, people, you might have heard this as, this is leadership 101. This is how you have a great lecture on leadership. I don't think that's what this is, is about. This is about the nations. This is a wonderful thing. Look, look at the beginning of chapter 18. In, in the beginning of chapter 18, we have a family reunion, right? Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, finally catches up with the Israelites and Moses in the wilderness, and they have this wonderful family reunion. And then, verse 8, Moses tells Jethro all that God does. He gives testimony to what God has done in Egypt. Jethro wasn't there. Jethro is a priest of Midian. He's a Midianite. And so Moses testifies to what God does. He's like, so, you know, it's going bad. And then God did this. And then he rained, God rained down this. And there is this wonder and this plague. And then God said that we we're going to do this and that. And we finally got out. He just gives testimony. He just explains and describes all that God had done for the people of God in Egypt And then this is what happens. Verse 9, Jethro rejoices. And then verse 10, Jethro declares. This is what he says. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than other gods because of this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. He makes this amazing, amazing confession. Now I know your God. And after he makes this confession, if you just keep reading the story, Jethro, Moses, and Aaron, they make a sacrifice to God. They, they then break bread. They actually, the, the language there is that they, they're coming into a treaty sort of. They're having fellowship between a pagan priest of Midian and the people of God. Here we see that a pagan priest of Midian knows God. If you go back to Exodus chapter 9, when the seventh plague falls, the Lord says this, that that the purpose of these plagues, verse 16 the sort of purpose about why God raised up Moses as an instrument of his judgment was, verse 16, to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. That's the purpose, not just that his name might be proclaimed in Israel, but that by doing this, his name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. And so what we see here in Jethro's confession it serves to partially fulfill God's promise back in Exodus chapter 9. And then if you keep going back all the way to Abraham, the promise that God is going to save 
people from every nation, that God is going to use this little people in order to be a blessing to the nations. Every nation is going to know. People from every nation are going to know of the name of God. And here in the life of Jethro, a pagan priest of Midian, we have the first fruits of God bringing in the nations. And all Moses does is just testify. Moses doesn't manipulate. Moses doesn't sell Jethro on God. He just testifies. He just explains what God did. You guys, that's our job. That's our job. I, 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 I love it doing membership interviews because I get to hear your testimonies and your testimony of like, this is what God did in my life. I was real low in this situation and God saved me. I mean, they're amazing, right? Or you have dinner and, you know, I'm like, hey, share your testimony and you're hanging out with a bunch of people and they share your testimony. Aren't those just the most encouraging times to just hear what God has done in our lives? But we don't just have those conversations and share those stories here. We should be sharing those with people who don't yet know God. And I think Moses is instructive on at least a couple parts. One, our role isn't to just get the job done. Our role is to just testify, to just be like, I was lost, but now I'm fine, was blind, but now I see, right? Our, our job is just to testify to who God is, what he's done, and how it's transformed our lives, and to weave that tapestry of grace into the conversations that we have in our neighborhoods, in our work, and any person who we come in contact with. I also think it's instructive because of who Moses does this to. I think you start with family. I think that's the most natural. You start with giving testimony about who God is to family. I think parents, be doing this with your kids. That is your primary evangelistic kind of sphere right now is your children is to be weaving a a kind of a tapestry of God's grace, catechizing them into a biblical worldview and weaving all that God has done, testifying to his goodness and grace and doing that around the dinner table, bedtime, when your kids are scared, when they get an F on a test, during times of discipline. We do that in family. That's what I think Thanksgiving is all about. That, that's a great opportunity, right? When, when, the, when the, the mic gets shared, when you all go around and share what you're thankful for, amidst everything this past year, aren't we thankful for God and what he's done to preserve, preserve us in the midst of a hard couple years? Our job is merely to testify to God. I mean, it's a hard job. I'm not trying to belittle it. But I think sometimes we just get so hard on ourselves. We're just like, oh, I got to share the gospel. It's a, how do I do it? I want to be effective. We get so discouraged. But here, Moses just, he just tells it like it is. He just explains who God is, what God has done. And then he sees God work in Jethro's life such that then Jethro makes this confession. Now I know, right? Je- Moses had in, right before he goes down to Egypt, Moses says like, hey, I'm going down. God told me to do this. And it seems like Jethro's like, Eh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's God. Maybe you just ate too many Oreos, Moses, right? 
And yet now, because of this, because of all that God did in Egypt, now Jethro says, yep, yep, I know. God tests us all. He puts us in neighborhoods to test us. He gives us particular kids to test us. He gives us jobs to test us. All of life is a test. It's a means of revealing something within our lives. But, but tests aren't just that. They're also a means of training. That's the purpose of a good test, to see what someone has learned so that you can then help them learn what they should have learned. And that's what God is doing here. God is not, this is not like a gotcha. This is not like a trick, a question on a hard test. God's means of testing is so that he can train them and mold them more into his image as a people who put their faith in him, a people who activate their faith in power, and a people who want to just testify to all that God has done that the nations might be glad. That's the point of this. My guess is, and I know some of your stories, and I know some of the things that are going on in some of your lives, we're all going through a wilderness of sorts. Suffering, hardship, sadness. Whatever is revealed, whether good or bad, it is an opportunity to be trained in grace. It's an opportunity to run to Jesus to worship Jesus, and to magnify Jesus, not just within our own lives, but so that the nations, the people in our spheres of influence, might see that what we're going through, the trials we're going through, and that they might, by God's grace, like Jethro, might delight in the God who we're testifying to.